Well, good morning. My favorite Sundays here at Grace Fellowship Church are the Sundays when we get to have baptisms. Uh, it's a privilege for me to baptize people, and it's an encouragement to hear their testimonies. And I want to confess to you that uh, I, I, well, there was an error on my part. I threw Dave for a little bit of a loop. Uh, before I baptize people, I like to ask them questions. I like to ask them, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I also like to ask them some question of commitment, because that's what uh, baptism is. You're, you are making a commitment. You're, you are swearing the oath of allegiance to King Jesus and committing to follow Him. And I had told Dave ahead of time, I would ask him, will you obey and serve Him, Jesus Christ, as your King for the rest of your life? The obvious answer would be, I will. And instead, I said, do you intend? And it's like, uh, I, I will, I do. So, that's an error on my part. If you give people a script ahead of time, you have to stick to it yourself. Uh, so that's my lesson. I also want to say, I, I don't know if this was in the announcement time, uh, the, the air conditioning is broke up upstairs, and uh, so I know it's a little bit warmer than normal, but we're working on that. And since it is warmer, uh, I'm going to grant a uh, preemptive pardon on any who fall asleep during the sermon. Because the sound of my voice and the warmth of the room, and now we added humidity with the baptismal. That's quite the formula. Uh, but I'll try to be a little bit quicker today. It, it strikes me, having had a baptismal ceremony, it strikes me that today is the perfect day to talk about baptism and what it means and what it represents. And so we're going to look at a number of passages from the New Testament that show us uh, what baptism is, its meaning. And I also want to help you understand why we practice baptism the way we do here at Grace Fellowship Church. Uh, but before we get there, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in a very little while, all of us will be dead and standing face to face before King Jesus. In that moment, there will be no more doubts. And so I pray, Father, that You would use this moment in this church with Dave's testimony and confession of You, with these songs we've sung and with the word I'm preaching, to bring that certainty to everybody's attention, lest we play spiritual games and suddenly face Your Son unprepared. Forbid that any in the hearing of my voice would pass into the next life unprepared to meet You. Draw us to Yourself. Help us to know You so that we won't find You to be a stranger on that day. And please grant that this drama of baptism appointed to display the gospel, will have its intended effect on all of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I think the place to start is to say that baptism gets its meaning and importance from the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he died in our place for our sins. He, his resurrection triumphed over death and guarantees our eternal life. Uh, baptism gets its meaning and importance only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, as you reflect on what you've seen here today, understand we're not talking mainly about a religious ritual. It's not like uh, this was something the early church invented, and we thought it was a good ritual, and so we, we've decided to kind of perpetuate it. That's not what's going on. What we're doing here is mainly talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and His magnificent work of salvation, uh, dying for our sins and rising from the dead. We're talking about 
baptism, which means we're talking about how Jesus actually taught us to express our faith. He commanded that we do this. And He commanded that we do this in such a way that it dramatizes His life, death, and resurrection. So, don't think small thoughts this morning. Uh, Think big thoughts. Dave's baptism uh, is not just intended to be a ritual that's a nice ceremony. Uh, what, What we were picturing up there was Jesus Christ crucified to bear the sins of many and raised to reconcile them to God. And so, What we've done and what you've witnessed this morning is important, but how should we understand the symbolism of it, and why do we practice it the way we do here at Grace Fellowship Church? Uh, Well, to help answer those questions, I want to begin by reading our doctrinal statement as a church and then looking at a number of passages that uh, support and flesh out what we mean in our doctrinal statement when we talk about baptism. Our doctrinal statement reads, we believe that the Lord Jesus instituted the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper to be observed by all believers until His return. The key word in that uh, statement is the word ordinances. Uh, By that we mean that the Lord Jesus Christ ordained or commanded, hence the word ordinance, that we practice baptism. Now, that immediately gets to the heart of the issue, because what it emphasizes from our doctrinal statement is that it's not so important what my opinion about baptism is. It's not so important what your opinions about what baptism should be are. What's important is what Jesus says it is and how He commands us to practice it. Uh, That gets us to the heart of the issue. And I want to show you where Jesus introduces the idea of baptism. Turn in your Bible over to Matthew 28, verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. Starting in Matthew 28, verse 16, uh, Matthew records this. This is happening after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, "'All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.' teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, Those verses I just read to you are popularly known amongst Christians as the Great Commission. And what you have in the Great Commission is one controlling verb with a number of subordinate verbs that give us commands for what we're supposed to do till Christ returns. Uh, You could look at the Great Commission and think, and be overwhelmed, and think, oh, wow, you know, Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples and baptize and teach, and you could feel buried by four commands. That's not what's going on. In the Greek language, you can make constructions in a paragraph where you have a controlling verb, and then the other verbs help you understand how to do that thing. The main verb in the Great Commission is to make disciples. Uh, Those who follow Jesus are supposed to make disciples, and we do that by going to all nations, and then by baptizing those who've chosen to follow Christ, those who've repented of their sin, they've confessed their sin, they've repented, they've placed their faith in Jesus, they confess Him publicly. We're supposed to baptize those people as a church and also teach them to observe what Christ commanded. And so, the church is commanded to do this for all disciples, 
and uh, not only to teach them to observe what Christ commanded, but to be baptized. And the time frame of the command is defined by verse 20, where Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, until the end of the church age, this is something that the church is supposed to practice. Until Christ uh, comes again, we're commanded to baptize those who choose to follow Jesus. Now, when speaking about baptism, the place to start is to emphasize this, that Jesus Himself commanded it, that this is not a ritual of the church, as I said before, that the early church invented and then we've decided to continue doing because we think it's a nice uh, initiation rite or ritual. That's not what's going on. Jesus Himself commanded us uh, to do this, and the New Testament gives us examples of people baptizing so that we can follow. And so, we want to start there by saying we're doing something that we understand to be commanded by Jesus Himself. But that word ordinances in our doctrinal statement, it also serves a very important function in the history of English-speaking Christianity. Uh, There is a history behind why our church uses the word ordinances for the Lord's Supper and baptism, and this is the history. The Roman Catholic Church calls baptism and the Lord's Supper sacraments. And one of the things they mean by the word sacrament is that baptism and the Lord's Supper convey grace to the people who participate in them, even if there's no faith on the part of the person participating. Some Protestants, such as Baptists and those of us in the Evangelical Free Churches of America, we prefer to use the word ordinances to emphasize that faith is required in order for baptism or the Lord's Supper to do you any good. It's required for those who participate in them to receive any spiritual benefit by them. And in the passages that follow, follow, I'm going to show you uh, that the practice of faith, uh, practicing faith, is necessary in order for baptism and the Lord's Supper to do you good. Now, the second point that needs to be made about baptism, the first, of course, is that our Lord commanded it. The second would be that baptism expresses our union with Christ. The clearest teaching on this is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we've been buried with Him in baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, it would be a mistake to look at that quote, if you were to flip over to that passage for yourself and read it again and study it, it would be a mistake to look at that passage and say that water baptism is what unites us to Christ. Uh, That's a mistake. In the New Testament, in Romans and the rest of the New Testament, what unites us to Christ is faith. Uh, The means by which we're united to Christ is our faith in Him. But we show our faith or signify our faith, or you could say we demonstrate our faith by being baptized. It's the faith that unites us to Christ, that, but then baptism becomes a public demonstration of our faith in Him, and it symbolizes our union with Him. Maybe a good analogy would be uh, a wedding ring, right? Uh, in a traditional marriage so- ceremony, the spouses say, with this ring, I thee wed. Well, when we say that in a wedding ceremony… We don't mean that when I put this ring on your finger, we're married. 
What makes us married are the vows that we made to each other in front of the community. That's what makes us married. But the ring becomes a symbol of our covenant with each other. I don't think it would be far-fetched for a pastor doing a baptism to say to the person being baptized, with this baptism, you're united to Christ, and mean it in the same way that we mean with this ring, I thee wed. It's faith that unites us to Him, and then our baptism symbolizes that faith. So, in baptism by faith, we are united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and baptism is therefore a dramatic way of portraying what happened when you received Christ. The old self with its rebellion died, a new you of faith was raised, and submits to Christ and treasures Christ. Um, That's the confession that you make to the world and the confession you're making to heaven when you become baptized. And so, here at Grace Fellowship Church, we practice baptism because we believe our Lord Jesus Himself commanded it, and we also believe it is a symbol of our union with Christ that makes evident publicly our faith in Him. The third important point to be made about baptism is that as a church, we practice baptism by immersing people in water. The clearest evidence for this would be that passage I just read to you in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, because those verses describe the act of baptism as a burial and rising from the dead. The implication is that we would immerse people as a a picture of death and then Uh, raise them as a picture of resurrection. But we don't have to just lean on the implications or what we think the implications of Romans 6 are. There's other evidence in the New Testament that we should practice baptism by immersion. Uh, Primarily, the meaning of the Greek word baptizo is to immerse. If you look at the way Greek speakers use the word baptizo, just in everyday language, they used it, for instance, for dipping fabric in a dye or for immersing something in water. If you just look at the way secular people in Greek literature used it in their letters to each other or in books they wrote or in illustrations or stories, uh, their plays, if you just go look in there, you wouldn't get the picture that what's going on when something is baptized is that it's sprinkled or even that water is poured on it, but that it's being immersed in a bucket or a pool or some other body of water. Now, there are passages in the New Testament that without being explicit also seem to indicate that baptism is by immersion and not sprinkling. For instance, when the Ethiopian eunuch turns to faith while traveling with Philip, uh, in Acts chapter 8, Luke records uh, the eunuch saying, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. That phrase, went down into the water, naturally makes the most sense if Philip was baptizing the Ethiopian by immersion, because uh, if all baptism is is a sprinkling of water, Philip could have just used the drinking water they had in the chariot with them. Uh, Similarly, in John 3, verse 23, we read that John the Baptist uh, was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. Again, you don't need plentiful water if all you're going to be doing in baptism is sprinkling people. And I bring this up because there are other Christian traditions, there are other denominations of Christians that baptize by sprinkling, 
Uh, but we believe that even just the word baptizo in the Greek New Testament and, he, and what the New Testament says when it talks about baptisms, we believe that it really strongly implies immersing people in water. The fourth point to be made is that we practice baptism as a church in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We do that because we believe that's what Jesus was commanding uh, back in the Great Commission. Remember Matthew 28, verse 19, He says that we are to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so, the person, is by the, the person being baptized is by their actions making an appeal to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to confirm their redeeming work in his or her life. It is the Father who so loved the world that He gave up His only begotten Son unto death uh, for our redemption. It is the Son who voluntarily submitted to the Father's plan, uh, came to earth, and uh, endured the cross for the joy set before Him. It is the Holy Spirit who draws people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and applies the work of redemption that Christ uh, bought on the cross to our hearts by faith. And so, when we call upon the triune name, we're doing so as an appeal to the Trinity. We are doing so in our baptisms to honor the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to say with our words that we understand this baptism is by them and for them and because of them. And finally, the last point to be made is that at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe baptism is an expression of faith on the part of the one being baptized. And therefore, it is for believers only. Our understanding of the New Testament is that baptism is an expression of faith uh, of the one being baptized, and therefore, it's not something that an unbeliever can do. It's also not something an infant can do. There are several passages that persuade us of the Baptist view on this issue. Uh, The most important one for me would be Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. So, in those two two verses, Paul is using two pictures, right? There's the image of a spiritual circumcision and then also the image of baptism. Verse 11, you were circumcised. Verse 12, having been buried with Him in baptism. And there is a connection between the two. Uh, There is a circumcision of heart that took place when you turned to Christ, and then you died and rose again when you submitted to Him in baptism. And now, what that means is this. This is very important. When our Presbyterian and Reformed brethren uh, note that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant of the people of God, they're correct. They're absolutely right. They're making a valid point. In the Old Testament, men were circumcised to signify membership in the old covenant people of God. In the New Testament, men and women are baptized in order to signify membership in the new covenant people of God. There is a correlation, absolutely. But that leads Presbyterians and others to Uh, 
assume that since circumcision was given to the infants, uh, the male infants of the old covenant people, they would, they would circumcise them on the eighth day after they were born. Because that was the way it was practiced in the Old Testament, it's led some Christians to assume that we should baptize infant boys and girls of Christian parents uh, not long after they're born. But I don't believe that works textually with the way that baptism works and functions in the New Testament. I don't even believe it works covenantally. Allow me to show you from two passages. Turn over in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Colossians 2, verse 8. In Colossians 2.8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority." And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. In verse 12, Paul is speaking about baptism. And the key, word I want you, key words I want you to see are through faith. Can you see that down in verse 12, uh, that uh, he, you're raised up with Him through faith in the working of God? Baptism dramatizes the death and resurrection of Christ, but it's only meaningful because of the faith of the person being baptized. If there's no faith on the part of the person being baptized, the symbolism fails. The baptism falls flat. Paul uses the same language in Galatians 3. Uh, turn over to Galatians 3. I promise this is the last passage you have to turn to this morning. Galatians 3, verse 25. Actually, let's start in verse 23. In verse 23 of Galatians 3, Paul says, "'But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed.'" Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. So, in this passage, the law of God, take for instance the Ten Commandments, which is a shorthand for the larger law of God, that law of God is a tutor that shows us God's law, but as we reflect on it, we realize we don't live up to the laws He commands. God's law is a good law, but we don't fulfill it. And so, the law becomes a tutor that points us in the direction of seeing our need for Christ and for forgiveness. And we become sons and daughters of God through faith. That's the, that's the way that the tutor points us. We become sons and daughters of God through faith and no other way. So, when Paul connects that thought with baptism, he says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The verse that comes before makes it obvious that the only way that can be understood 
is if the baptism is the acting out of our faith in Christ. If we were to reverse verses 27 and 26, and we were to put 27 before 26, the logic would sound something like this. Since you were baptized into Christ, we know that in Christ you are sons of God through faith. Why? Because that's what baptism means. It means you are connected to Christ by faith, and you're making the appeal to God for a good conscience out of faith. The idea of baptism without faith is inconceivable to Paul. Everywhere he talks about baptism, he includes the faith, the idea of faith on the part of those who are baptized. And so, we need to say it this way. When the shift happened in redemptive history from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and from circumcision to baptism, there was a shift away from a focus on national Israel and all the Gentiles that converted uh, and joined her to worship the true God. There was a shift away from that and circumcision as the sign of the covenant to a focus on the church dispersed into every nation of the world where men and women received the sign of the new covenant by being baptized into Christ by faith. People participate in the new covenant not by spiritual birth to Christian parents, but by spiritual birth. And what this means for us when we take the Baptist view, understand the implications. It means that when we think about the composition of our own church family here at Grace Fellowship Church, we don't think of uh, our church family primarily uh, as uh, believing parents and their children. We think of it as believers only. We realize, at least the leadership realizes here at Grace Fellowship Church, that in many cases, we are still witnessing to and evangelizing the children and youth who attend our church. And the sign of membership in the New Covenant Church is not a sign for infants. It's for those who confess faith in Jesus. Uh, maybe I could say it this way, and uh, understand what I'm about to say. I'm not saying to be sarcastic. I'm not saying it to be funny. I mean it in uh, earnest. I mean it in all seriousness what I'm about to say. What we're talking about when we talk about baptism is a spiritual issue, not a physical issue. So, of course, we baptize infants, but we mean by that spiritual infants, baby Christians, people who've come to faith in Jesus in the last year or two, because you shouldn't put off baptism. You should be baptized uh, early on in your faith. Uh, we baptize people who are young in the faith because baptism is typically something that new converts participate in. And so, yes, many of the people we baptize are spiritual babies. They are newborn Christians, but we don't baptize physical infants because we've never met an infant who could give us a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At Grace Fellowship Church, we baptize believers only. So, let me sum up then what we believe and teach about baptism in closing. We believe baptism is important. It is not a, a ritual created by the church, but an act of faith ordained or commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ. It expresses our union with Him and is done by immersion in water. Um, that immersion in water symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that the believer is now connected to by faith. And it is something that we do as a church in the Trinitarian name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is for believers only because it is an act that accompanies a living faith and a public confession of 
uh, profession of faith in Christ as Savior that infants are incapable of making. Baptism calls forth a believer's public commitment to Christ. It's like uh, the oath of allegiance to Jesus as King, and it's also the way that we go public with our faith and publicly confess faith in Jesus before other people. And having made that commitment in baptism, Christians are then put on a lifelong track of open witness to the grace of God in Christ. As an act, it pictures and promotes the gospel. Baptism is important because the, uh, it's important in the life of the individual believer, and it's also important in the life of our larger church together because of the gospel that it so vividly displays. Let's pray.